Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. Each week I speak with citizen changemakers who spark civic engagement in our society. Our guest today is Michael Baranowski. He's a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University with a focus on American political institutions, public policy, and media. He's also a co-host of a podcast called The Politics Guys that features civil bipartisan dialogue. It's congenial, but at the same time goes deep on the policy side. He generously invited me to be on his show. We talked about why I started Future Hindsight, impeachment, and the 2020 Democratic presidential candidates. It dropped on December 18th, impeachment day. I'm so grateful for that opportunity and encourage you all to check it out. The Politics Guys podcast is Exhibit A in showing us that civic engagement does not exist without civil discourse. It is invaluable for our society to be able to hear both sides presented in a manner that allows you to stay with it, truly listen, and inform your worldview. What I really want to get across to people is that if you go into these conversations with a little bit of intellectual humility and a willingness to really listen to the other person, putting a little bit of trust in their motives, I think you can get a long way and you can find that sometimes you actually agree on more things than you would have thought. In addition to talking about how we can foster more bipartisan dialogue, we also discuss the state of our institutions, impeachment, politics, and how this all leads to improving our lives. Let's listen in. Thank you for joining us. Oh, I'm, I'm happy to be here. You started the show in like 2015 or 14. How so? What was the idea of starting the show? Well, I'd been listening to podcasts for a few years before that, and I hadn't really found any bipartisan politics podcast that I liked. There was one, but I felt sort of that the the liberal side was being crushed by the conservative. And I thought, you know, I could do a little bit better. And so I contacted an old college friend of mine who I knew was a conservative and he'd been active in Republican politics for a number of years. And we decided to give it a shot and see what happened. So you really want to just fill a space that you felt was missing. How do you feel about how you've been doing since you've been doing it for a few years now? Well, our initial goal was to not have so much bipartisan shouting, which you can find, I think, a lot of places, but to have what we call the civil and rational discussion. And that was the goal from the beginning. And, and that really hasn't changed. I think when we started off, it was probably a little less serious. Uh, Jay used to say it's kind of like crossfire meets car talk. But uh, over time, I think we've delved more deeply into some policy and more serious things. So if anything, we've kept that initial commitment, but we've tried to go even deeper. I was listening to your episode about the impeachment, and you guys really disagree, actually. It's civil, but at some points you're both yeah. a little bit like, mm, I can't take you seriously. Really? That's what you believe? So how do you do this day in, day out? What's your personal takeaway? I think the reason that I'm able to do it, particularly with Jay, is that I've known him for, well, over 20 years now. And that really matters because I trust him. Even if I don't understand him, he's a fundamentally decent person who wants the same things that I do. And so if he sees something very differently from me, my default assumption is not going to be that 
he's this sort of evil person who wants to destroy the country, but that I need to maybe re-examine how I'm looking at the world given our fundamental agreements on those basic things. That, and so that, I think, is what really makes it easier, that that level of trust. Mm. That's fair. So what are the things that you think you both want in common? We want security, and that's both physical security and economic security. We want uh, a better life for our families. We want meaningful, fulfilling work. And I think almost everyone wants those things. And so based on that key agreement, we we sort of go from there. Really basic things that you agree on, which is good. That's good. I mean, a lot of people can't even (laughs) agree on the basics. You mentioned just now also that you are reexamining your positions depending on what he says, right? So what are the things where you feel like you've actually really changed your mind as opposed to maybe just tweaking around the edges and be like, well, okay, maybe, but you didn't change your mind? Yeah, well, I think I've changed my mind about Donald Trump, actually. I mean, right after the election, I was both kind of profoundly depressed and in sort of a state of shock. And I felt this almost a sense of doom. But then both by listening to Jay and my other conservative co-hosts, and well, I guess also from the midterm elections, it reminded me that American politics is designed to ensure that things don't get too far out of balance for too long and that our institutions are stronger and more resilient than a lot of people give them credit for. I still think he's a disaster as a president, but I don't think he's an existential threat to our democratic system. And early on, I wasn't so sure about that. Oh, tell me more about that. How do you not think that he's an existential threat? In the day-to-day of following the media narrative, it's easy to get caught up in the sensationalism and so forth. It helps to be reminded of the fact that we have regular elections and we saw what happened in 2018. You know, the Democrats ended taking the House. And just like a lot of Republicans would say, there was this awfulness, as they would maybe characterize it, of Barack Obama. But what happened? Well, in 2010, there was a conservative resurgence. And so the system, I feel, is designed to self-correct. That is why I don't think Donald Trump is the threat a lot of media commentators are saying, because uh, as an institutionalist, I I have a lot more faith in our institutions. And sometimes I just need to remind myself and I guess our our listeners of that. Mm -hmm. That's a fair point that the 2018 elections did make a difference and the system appears to work. In terms of the show, what are the benefits for our democracy and our public interest to have a bipartisan dialogue that's civil like yours? Well, I think that the biggest benefit might be just showing folks that it's possible that you can disagree with things and not have it turn into open warfare and not have it be uh, uh, so incredibly visceral and emotional. What I really want to get across to people is that if you go into these conversations with a little bit of intellectual humility, which is not to say you're just willing to give up your beliefs, but understanding that you don't maybe have all the answers and a willingness to really listen to the other person, but putting a little bit of trust in their motives, I think you can get a long way and you can find that sometimes you actually agree on more things than you would have thought. And I'd like to give you an example of that. 
a few weeks ago, I was talking to uh, Representative Thomas Massey. And Thomas Massey's a Freedom Caucus guy. And on policy, he and I agree with very little. I was prepared for this to be a train wreck. But I went into it trying to really listen to him. And what I found is that on a lot of sort of deep structural issues, we actually agreed much more than I thought. And it was, I thought, one of my best interview episodes ever. And I totally wouldn't have expected that. That's the sort of thing I think you can have if you go into these conversations with a certain type of attitude. Yeah, agreed. I think having humility, respect, and open mind is very key to constructive dialogue. So I'm curious, what are the structural issues that you agree on? Well, we both agree that Congress is a deeply flawed institution at present, and that for one thing, seats on committees shouldn't be in effect for sale, and that fundraising shouldn't take up so much of a member of Congress's time. The figure often cited is 30 to 70 percent of a member's time is spent fundraising. And I asked him about that, and he said, well, in Congress, that seems about right. And he thought that that's awful, and, and I agree. We also agree that Congress should reassert its authority as the leading institution, at least as the framers envision it. And clearly, Congress has given away so much of its power to the executive. And that's the sort of thing that's a bipartisan problem. We saw conservatives incredibly upset at how they felt Barack Obama abused his powers And Congress did very little to take those power back. And now, of course, we on the left are very upset at what Donald Trump is doing. And the answer to that is for Congress to step up and take back its role as a co-equal branch. Executive power over the last 100 years has just kept on getting stronger and stronger. But Congress has largely just stepped back and, and decided in a lot of instances to put party loyalty and partisan politics before what I feel is the greater good of the country and their rights as an institution. I think we're seeing this in the impeachment issue, which, of course, is the main thing everyone's looking at now. It's almost like we've become some sort of a weird variant of a parliamentary system, which we're not designed to be, obviously. You do a lot of dialogue with Jay and other conservatives on your show, but you also do interviews with public intellectuals and academics like Larry Lessig. And also you had Chris Beam and Michael Berkman on from Penn State. How do these conversations dovetail your bipartisan dialogue format? Well, over time, what we try to do is bring on a mixture of liberals and conservatives. And we had, you know, Thomas Massey on uh, early on. We had Jim Jordan on the show. We've had plenty of conservative uh, economists, and we kind of uh, juxtapose that with liberal activists and, and academics and authors and so forth. What we've tried to do more recently is if we're just going to be featuring, say, uh, me as a liberal talking to another liberal like uh, Jacob Hacker, then we're going to have Jay or another conservative on after to provide a little more of that balance. And we're trying our best to give a bipartisan look at, at all of all of the people we bring on. Mm-hmm. What have you learned about your audience, given that you are trying so hard to be bipartisan, that you present both sides and perhaps by extension, the American people, just because, of course, you know, the people who will tune in are a specific subset of the population. But there's something to be said about that. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, In our audience, what I've learned is that we have a small number of very passionate 
very involved, and generally, I would say, somewhat ideologically inflexible listeners. And they're the ones who dominate our discussions. I see this on our forums and that sort of thing and people who write in. But also, there's this larger number of people that we don't typically hear from, unless I make a really concerted effort to reach out, who are much less extreme, much less intense, but what we do really matters to them. And so that kind of mirrors, I think, the American electorate. We tend to focus so much on that 5 to 10% who dominate with their energy, and oftentimes that's accompanied by their extremism. But we tend to forget that most of the public is just not that ideological and doesn't want big things, whether that big thing is a massive wall or you know a complete remaking of the American healthcare system. And I think it's all too easy to forget that in our debates and to focus too much on those extremes on either side and not enough on the people in, in the middle who are, I think, sometimes ignored. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. I totally agree with you. I, I think that most Democrats and Republicans are centrists in many ways and, you know, lean left, lean right, but are not on the extremes. How has your show changed since the election of the president? Because I think actually a lot of the people who are in the Republican Party have changed. And this is also true, I think, of people on the left. It has animated people on both sides in different ways. And so how is that reflected in your conversations? I mean, we focus a lot on the president in a way that we didn't when Barack Obama was president because Donald Trump is so, well, so weird, so different. We've never seen a a modern president or any president, I think, really like him. He's somebody who clearly has little to no respect for the norms of the presidency or even, I would argue, a lot of basic democratic norms. And I'm trying to figure out how to deal with that, how to talk about that. I think it's a struggle that we've seen in the media more generally, and we've we faced it on the show because as much as possible, we like to focus on policies as opposed to uh, rhetoric and you know what Donald Trump is actually doing as opposed to what he's tweeting. But those things get so weirdly intermingled now with tweets as semi-official policy and so forth that that's been a real struggle for us. So to loop back to your earlier argument that our institutions are strong, do you not think that the fact that he is always bucking the democratic norms, that he's really damaging our institutions? For example, one of the most disheartening things for me was when he smeared Ambassador Yovanovitch. I understand that she serves at his pleasure. And she said this herself, that of course he can just fire her. But smearing her is really something that actually plays into a narrative that the United States foreign policy is not guided within the United States and is not strong in and of itself. If she just wants to replace her, just do it. He didn't have to actually drag her through the mud. I think that's bad for our national security. So I kind of feel like, well, I don't know how, how I could argue that, you know, that our institutions are still sound. I certainly am sympathetic to that argument. And more more broadly, I would say that there's a, a pattern of Donald Trump simply trying to delegitimize the very idea of any attack. And that, to me, is, is much more profoundly 
disturbing. But there are a couple of things that make me feel better about it. For one is that at least at this point, it seems like our electoral system is still largely intact. Certainly there have been attempts to interfere, and that's why I think these investigations and the impeachment is so important, because the idea that a sitting president would uh, intervene in a way to try to gain an electoral advantage in the way that President Trump's alleged to have done, that's, that's hugely concerning. But again, I go back to the midterm elections. Well, if we hadn't had that, of course, we wouldn't be seeing impeachment. And much of this stuff wouldn't have come to light. And to me, that's an example of the system working. And if as things go, as I hope they will, in 2020, well, Donald Trump will be a one-term president and uh, the system will have worked more. And also, so many things that he's wanted, he hasn't been able to get because the courts have thwarted him so often. And I see that as an example of the system working. So I think Donald Trump has uh, been a deeply frustrated guy, and I think that's a good thing. Barack Obama, I think, was in many ways a deeply frustrated guy. And again, I think that's an example of the system working, presidents not being able to get done everything that they want to do. Yeah, I hear you. That's uh, well put, truly, on the system working. So now that we are really talking about impeachment, how has your show changed since the impeachment inquiry? Because in the public sphere, people have only become more hardened on each side and there isn't really any middle ground and nobody's having any kind of nuanced conversation about impeachment. Yeah, it's been difficult because, of course, it's been a story that's dominated the news for a long time now. And so we feel an obligation to talk about it, but there's this sense of that it's, uh, uh, I guess, a, a show trial, because when you believe that despite whatever evidence is uncovered, that's not going to change any minds, you know, and so I've tried to be as open to what I feel to be intellectually honest conservative arguments as possible, and to try to see the impeachment inquiry from a conservative's perspective. And I'd like to think that at least some of my conservative co-hosts have done the same thing. But there's only, I think, so much you can do when it seems like the outcome is already predestined. Oh, I don't think it's predestined. Um, you don't? Oh, no, wow. I definitely don't think that. You know, this is not over. Who knows? I mean, it's the same with the election of Donald Trump, right? All of us knew it in our bones, quote unquote, sure. that Hillary Clinton would win it. And then she didn't. And so I think if there's anything that we know is that we don't know. And I kind of feel like that's just a neutral statement that yeah. I don't know whether in the end he will not be removed, which is not to say that I'm confident that he will be either. <laughs> but right, all I'm saying right. is that I'm not 100 percent convinced. And I think that's um, that's a pretty open minded. I think it's uh, fatalistic to just say, oh, it's predestined. And why are we doing this? Because I think yeah. then it changes also the way that we think about the process and the way that we consider the evidence. So you teach political science. How do you bring bipartisan dialogue into the classroom? I mean, I joke about indoctrinating students at Northern Kentucky University, but I, I try very hard to present both sides. And for me, it's actually a little bit easier than it might be for some people because I actually started out life as a sort of fire-breathing uh, conservative, I would say, somewhat to the right of my childhood hero, Ronald Reagan. I made that ideological transition, which I'd like to think gives me more of a lens into how 
both conservatives and liberals see the world and maybe somebody who's never been on both sides of that fence. And so I bring that to bear. I think every day I'm in front of students and that's, you know, what we try to do with the podcast as well. Wow. Okay. So you said something really big just now. You used to be more conservative than Ronald Reagan. What oh, yeah. <laughs> was your, <laughs> okay. So why did you switch? What was the thing that made you think, oh, let me reconsider? I like to say that I didn't leave the Republican Party. The Republican Party left me. Um, if you set aside the, the Cold War stuff, and I was an ardent Cold Warrior, and that whole world changed, obviously, with the fall of the Soviet Union. And that was a big reason why I think a lot of people were drawn to conservatism, at least in that era. But on a lot of domestic issues, really, uh, the Republican Party was far more centrist than it is now. I mean, you take a look at someone like a Richard Nixon, who would be considered practically a socialist these days, talking about things like universal basic income and all kinds of broad social programs that would go nowhere in the Republican Party or even, you know, Mitt Romney. And so the Republican Party really, starting with uh, Newt Gingrich in the mid-90s, shifted pretty radically to the right. And that's about the point when I started going away from the party because I saw the party that I believed in change to something that I didn't really recognize. And uh, that, along with going to graduate school and thinking more deeply about some of these things, especially issues of uh, social justice that I hadn't really as fully considered in the past and being exposed to different people, different backgrounds and orientations, that made a big difference to me as well. Yeah. Well, that's amazing. I agree that, of course, the Republican Party has changed a lot. I would argue also that the Democratic Party has become more conservative with a little c. More centrist, maybe, is a better way to describe it, especially during the Clinton years. Yeah, I think absolutely so. I think especially the Democratic Party has become much more financially conservative, economically conservative, because that's where the money is. And to me, I agree with Larry Lessig that so much of this is driven by the desperate need to raise money. Republicans were cleaning Democrats' clocks on this, and Democrats just shifted to where the money was to the detriment of uh, a lot of the American people. Yeah, I mean, I listened to the Larry Lessig interview with great interest. It was terrific. The fact that there is so much money raising that has to be done by members of Congress, that they still at the end of the day are so severely underpaid that they live in their congressional offices and take showers in the gym because they can't afford to have housing both, you know, in their district and in Washington, I think is something that is not entirely clear to most Americans. I think people don't fully understand that that is what's happening. And I think when we think about money and politics, it's very murky and it's unclear exactly what money buys in Congress. Yeah. It's entirely clear that money buys access. And uh, not only that, even more so, there are plenty of people who study public policy outcomes who would say it's also very clear that when people with money 
uh, have one view and people without have another view, even if there are a lot more people without, the view of the people with money and power is, is the view that gets enacted into law. And so uh, to me, that, that this is an empirical question, and it's a question that's been fairly definitively answered. Again, to the detriment of the mass, the American people, we have a system that is hugely tilted toward the wealthy and the powerful, and I think that's a travesty. I couldn't agree with you more. That is a topic for another podcast. <laughs> However, I mean, I think we could talk about that for hours and hours. Oh, yeah. So I also am a big fan of bipartisan dialogue. I think it's very healthy for our democracy. What are two things you think we could be doing to advance bipartisan dialogue in our everyday lives? Oh, yeah. I think that's a great and very important question. I think one thing, if possible, uh, and sometimes it's hard for some people, but to find a conservative, or if you're a conservative, a liberal, someone who you believe to be a decent person, and try to have conversations with them on a regular basis. To me, that has been uh, that has been very eye-opening. A second thing, very much related to that, even if you don't have a conservative or a liberal friend, is to kind of force yourself on a regular basis to delve into some conservative or liberal media pretty much every day. I'll look at Fox News or Drudge or the Wall Street Journal and really try to dig into a few editorials on things where I think my mind is already made up. And I force myself through that to try as much as possible to get myself into the headspace of that other side. I think nothing is more valuable than to try to really understand how the other side is looking at the world, and not from a know-your-enemy type of a viewpoint, but from a, there are a lot of just really decent Americans who value certain things differently than I do. And, you know, that's one thing I've taken away from this is, like my friend Jay, he values freedom so much more than, say, uh, justice. And I don't I don't agree with that. I, I value justice a little more highly, but we can talk about that if we can get into the fact that, well, he doesn't devalue justice. He just feels that freedom is a higher value. And I think there are a lot of conservatives who feel that way. And if we can talk about those values and focus more on those basic things that we share and, and build from there, we can really make a difference, at least at the margins. Oh, this is really beautiful and good advice. Thank you. I have to say that your show is really smart and I really enjoyed listening to it while I was Thank getting you. ready for the interview. So I highly recommend The Politics Guys. Before we close, I have a few more questions. One sure. is that you bring a lot of passion to this project, clearly. You're, first of all, prolific, <laughs> a lot of interviews, and you're very enthusiastic. What's the source of your passion? You know, I, I've always been just so drawn to politics. I'm very much an extrovert, very people-oriented, and certainly politics is about, you know, making people's lives better. In a way, I can't think of anything that's more important to be engaged in this effort to try to find a way to improve all of our lives. And if that if that doesn't get you excited, I I, I don't know. I don't know what would. I totally agree. So uh looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? Well, I think what makes me more hopeful than anything else is our institutional structure. I still believe in uh, the collective wisdom of the American people. And I think when they see things going too far 
in the wrong direction, even with all these inequalities and the fact that, yes, the wealthy have a much greater voice. I believe that in the end, the American people through the electoral system will rise up and set the ship, if not totally right, at least getting it going too far in the wrong direction. So I still believe in the American people. I still believe in democracy. And that makes me hopeful. Hear, hear. Thank you very much. My pleasure. My favorite part about this episode is learning about how Michael has evolved. Since we taped our interview, I've been thinking about this evolution, from being a Republican to becoming a Democrat, from feeling that Trump was an existential threat to believing that our institutions are strong enough to weather his presidency. I admire his tenacity in continually engaging in bipartisan dialogue to keep an open mind, to evaluate the evidence, and to approach each conversation with intellectual humility. And I've come away feeling even more than before that the United States is a centrist country and that the media makes us out to be more polarized than we actually are. As Michael reminds us, when we listen closely, we will discover that we agree on many of the deep structural issues that face our nation. Like him, I also have faith in the American people. Civil discourse is perhaps the most effective way for us to bridge our differences, to inform our civic engagement and our vote, and finally, to strengthen our democracy. Next week, our guest is Daniel Markovitz. He is Guido Calabresi, professor of law at Yale Law School and author of The Meritocracy Trap, How America's Foundational Myth Feeds Inequality, Dismantles the Middle Class, and Devours the Elite. We discuss the roots of inequality being meritocracy and not unbridled capitalism and what this means for us as human beings across the board, no matter whether you are in the middle class, the elite, or the working class. It is, in my mind, a new way to think about inequality in America and explains why life is so competitive and intense for children today. And further, how meritocracy is eroding our democracy. An enormous share of the increase in the riches portion of total national income does not come from a shift away from labor and towards capital, but rather a shift within labor, away from middle-class labor and towards super-skilled labor. You know, the partners who make $5 million a year at law firms, the bankers who make five or $10 million a year, the CEOs who make $20 million a year. That's all labor income. And that's what's driving inequality in the United States today. Until next time, stay engaged. I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for listening to Future Hindsight. The executive producer and host of this program is Mila Atmos. The audio producer and music composer is Peter Fedak. The associate producer is Miriam Zumbu. Additional production by Brooke Sayan. Listen to us online at futurehindsight.com or your favorite streaming service. Music